Bienvenidos al Mestizo Podcast, the show for the mixed people of the mixed church. On this podcast, we explore the complicated challenges of being part of, serving in, and growing an ethnic church in El Siglo XXI. As first-generation immigrants age out of their leadership and the Mestizo Church transitions to its second and third generation, how does the ethnic church continue to thrive? What should an ethnic church look like today? These questions and more are what we explore together with your hosts, Emanuel Padilla y la doctora Elizabeth Conde Frazier. Your hosts are Puerto Rican, so you're going to hear some Spanglish de vez en cuando here on the Mestizo Podcast. It's part of who we are. On today's episode, we introduce you to the very real and complicated challenges facing the ethnic churches. You'll get to know us, your hosts, and our connection to these churches. And we get real about how hard this mixed church stuff really is. So, sientas en casa, make yourself at home, and let's get started. Elizabeth, welcome to Chicago. Thank you, brother. Welcome to the Moody Bible Institute. <laughs> Thank you. You've been a great uh, broker showing me everything, what's happening, what's not <laughs> happening. Very good. You, you... It's been fun. I, I'm really grateful because I get to be the person who introduces you to this campus. This is your first time ever being here. Is that right? Yes. I've read about this campus. I know its history. I know its leader. But no, it's the first time I stepped foot here. Yeah. So I'm really grateful. It's a blessing. Uh, I know that uh, sometimes Moody can be kind of a strange place, a disorienting place. I had that experience for sure. So it's been cool. Uh, you're here for a conference. And now by the time this airs, people will, will have the conference will have come and gone. But, but for now, let's tell a little bit about what you're doing here. You're speaking at which conference? The um, Liberating Evangelicalism Conference, and it's a conference to bring people of color who are evangelicals to talk about what their faith expressions are and issues that they're working on and why those issues are important to them and to look at why we need to be uh, collaborating and to do so uh, without talking about it in relationship to the um, dominant community. Yeah. Right, because then we lose our own issues mm -hmm. in regards to that. So it's a, it's different. It's a, a, a different space for this type of dialogue. Yeah, a safe space. Mm -hmm. It reminds me of the the cafeteria room table where the minorities would gather to talk about things that they were experiencing, that they didn't get a chance to talk about in the classroom or in the dorms, right? But but in the cafeteria, we get to have kind of our our inside conversation. Right, but it's also to do the critical thinking that allows you to. Um, Ask yourself, why is it that we're having to talk about this? That's good. I love it. So, hey, obviously you're getting a sneak peek of some of what we're going to be talking about, uh, what Elizabeth will be talking about at the conference, and I get to go enjoy and listen. But this is a new podcast. Uh, so you're uh, our first listener. You're listening to the first episode of the Mestizo podcast. Mestizo might be a new word to you. Um, and some of you, it might even be a bad word. Some of you might come from... Uh, Hispanic background and feel a little uncomfortable. Ooh, mestizo. What, why is this podcast called this? We, we want to give you an introduction and tell you why we're using that word, why this podcast is chosen to be identified with that word, and why we think that is such an important uh, theological term for the church and what we're doing together in ministry. So, Elizabeth, tell us, what do you know about the word mestizo? How did it become such an important theological word for us? Well, mestizo really comes from uh, when you lived in the New Americas, right? Or new to the Europeans. But when you lived in the Americas and the people were mixing and everything else, and they were like, oh, wait a minute, who are we? What are we about? So in Mexico, they actually gave you a choice. 
And you could go and register yourself and you could register yourself as white. You could register yourself as African, you know, black. Mm -hmm. You could register yourself as mestizo. And mestizo meant that you were a mix between the European and the indigenous peoples. There also came the word mulatto, which meant that you were a mix between the European and the African, Mm -hmm. right? So those words came then. Those words were usually used by colonizers to um, denigrate. And actually, the mother country would say of those who were their own living in the new world, and I'll put that in quotes, that they were not the same kind of Spaniard that we had in the old world because the sun was too hot, right? It made them brown, et cetera, and that they couldn't think the same way. And that was a way of disempowering them so that Spain could continue to um, say what the policies and so forth were going to be. Yeah. But uh, so if you were mixed, even more so, so you were really denigrated. Vasconcelos, a philosopher, uh, comes in and goes, you know what? He uses the word mestizo and he uses the word to celebrate that diversity, that mix of who we are. And then uh, Virgilio Elizondo uses mestizo to speak theologically about who we are and to speak about the creation of God in us as a mixed people and to speak well about what it means to be diverse, to speak about the fact that there are no 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 different races, right? Absolutely. That's a, that's a, a construct of colonialism in order to uh, create a hierarchy of power. Yeah. So instead, that's, that's pretty empowering. It's theology taking back our humanity, in mm-hmm. a sense, making us fully human by using that word and celebrating it and bringing it back. Then evangelicals take it and we bring it back to Pentecost. Yeah. And even before that, right? What I love about the use of the word mestizo for us in this podcast and for those of us who are using the word theologically in the academy and in the church, what I love is, like you said, it was a word used to denigrate and keep people from power before. And we're saying, hey, those that were weak actually have power in the very term that you're using to identify them. So this mixed group, they've got a kind of clarity about a biblical theme, right? Even before Pentecost, what I think of Exodus 12:38. It's a verse that a verse that we read by so quickly because it's mm-hmm. happening in the middle of, you know, la, la columna de fuego, la columna de nube, right? Like mm-hmm. in the middle of this chaotic scene where uh, the Lord is redeeming a people for himself out of Egypt, right? The firstborn has just been killed. Anyone who's seen Prince of Egypt remembers, right? Pharaoh is furious <laughs> and there's all this going on, right? And right there, this small little verse, Exodus 12:38, says that a mixed multitude left the land of Egypt, that the land of power and oppression where God's people were slaves, that those slaves left Egypt with a mixed group. And that the first time that God ever redeemed for himself a people, he redeemed the mixed people. And I think that that's an important, that's why I think it's such a rich theological word, because it's from the very beginning of the story for us. If you take it even further, then when you have the exile and you have the Jeremiah piece, Jeremiah is telling them, hey, you're going to be here 70 years, so, you know, marry among the people and live here and, you know, plant here and have houses here. Have children. Yeah, so he's telling them to mix again. Mm -hmm. And that goes back then to the Vigilio piece where he sees Jesus as coming out of those people from exile, right? And now the mix can be seen in terms of how they speak. And they don't speak like straight Hebrew anymore. They speak the Aramaic, which is a mix, Mm -hmm. right, of the language. And so Virgilio lifts up Jesus as being the mestizo. 
of mestizos. That's an important piece. So obviously there's a lot of theology, there's a lot of history related to the word mestizo. For those of you listening to this first episode of the podcast, what we want you to know is that the Mestizo Podcast, just like I said in that introduction, uh, the Mestizo Podcast is the show for the mixed people of the mixed church. The people that are ready to acknowledge that God's people are a mixed people and that there are some challenges that come with that. That it's really hard to be the mixed church. And there's one particular challenge that we're going to be addressing as the big theme of this season of this podcast. Uh, we've, we've talked a little bit in this introduction about ethnic churches. I just want to tell you at the front end, we know that all churches, to one degree or another, are an ethnic church. Some churches are multi-ethnic, they're multicultural. Uh, we know that to be true. Uh, when we say multi-ethnic, or when we say ethnic church rather, uh, we're leaning on some sociologists who have studied uh, what they call immigrant or minority churches. Uh, there's a situation. This podcast, the Mestizo Podcast, is part of the Network for World Outspoken, which is a consulting ministry that partners with churches everywhere. I do some of that consulting. So a little bit of backstory for me. I have been working over the last few years with some minority churches that have mixed children, right? So they're, they're kind of like the, the Hebrews who are speaking Aramaic, right? They are he born in the U.S., speaking the language of the U.S., in a culture that isn't the culture of their parents, right? They're, they're trying to make sense of their experience. And here's what I'm finding. A lot of the pastors that hire us to come in and help them make sense of the world of their church ministry, uh, one of the main questions they're asking is, how do we keep our young people? They're, their young people are leaving, they're not staying as part of the church, and they're doing one of two things. They're either leaving the church altogether, or they're leaving and going to a white church and the, and the pastor's going, but they're losing their culture. And there's, there's a... Uh, an apprehension, a fear related to that, that, that becomes quite intense. Uh, Elizabeth, you told me that it's to the clip of 25 to 45% yes. a year of the, of the young people of a church. And when I say young people, to clarify, I mean anyone from the ages of 18 to 29. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that stat, that age range, uh, a little bit later on this episode. But, but the point I want to make here is that this podcast comes out of questions that come from pastors. Uh, pastors and church leaders, ministry leaders, who are saying uh, the young people are having some kind of a disconnect with uh, with the church as it currently stands, with the minority ethnic church, right? So we're talking about churches that are not uh, coming from major white bases, but churches that are coming from either, in this case, Hispanic settings, Korean. Uh, one of the churches I worked with was a Romanian church that was mm -hmm. having its young people leave. Ethiopian. Ethiopian, mm -hmm. right? So Coptic. Coptic, when we say ethnic church, we're talking about those churches. And we're talking about their experience of loss of the young people. And we're trying to address that concern. So the Mestizo podcast is for all those mixed churches that are looking to the young people and saying, how do we minister to this group? Um, because that's the questions that we're getting asked. Um, one of the questions you might have as a, as a listener is, well, why do we get to speak to this? Right? Why do Elizabeth and I... I get to be the ones to do this show. Well, one, because we're interested, but two, it's our experience. We, we've mm -hmm. got we've got some real uh, connection. We got skin in the game, as some of our friends like to say. So, Elizabeth, uh, as a way of introduction to the re to the listener, maybe I'll ask you, um, what's your cultural background? So I'm a New Yorkian. 
That's how I identify myself because my parents were from Puerto Rico and my grandparents, right? They came to New York. That's where they established themselves. And I grew up mainly in New York. Um, you know how it is. Puerto Ricans go back and forth between Puerto Rico and, and New York. They, they talk about brincando el chalco, right? Mm -hmm. And um, when you're having to leave your country, uh, kind of in a forced way because of financial issues, you always dream about going back, right? Because that's part of the problem for the first generation is that this is like a forced exile. And the dream of the one who is forced is always to return. So, you know, my parents went back and we lived there like two or three years. And then we had to return because, of course, due to Puerto Rico's uh, colonized uh, status, uh, we couldn't make ends meet. So we had to return. And when I returned, um, I had the chance to understand what it was to be on both sides. So I kind of function as a 1.5 generation, but I'm really a, a second generation. So if I have to, I can understand the first generation in ways that perhaps someone who didn't live there doesn't. Um, and so and as a pastor, that's what I did as well, right? But I'm really second generation, which means that um, I would speak more English than Spanish, uh, especially as we're educated here. So you're looking for words to say the kind of things that you want to say professionally uh, in Spanish to somebody else professionally. Just the other day, I had to go to Puerto Rico and do an academic presentation, and I was sweating, man. I was like, oh, my God, how am I going to do this? And I went down to the library of the Universidad Interamericana where they had this um presentation thing going on and I had heard you know other colleagues and I was like oh my god I don't even know the level of the Spanish so I had to go and look things up and you know quickly find words that were the professional words that I wanted in academia so that I could sound as academic as they did in Spanish right so that's the kind of thing that we um, struggle with Right? Yeah. We struggle with I that. I do that all the time. I teach a course here in Spanish in theology. I teach a theology course in Spanish here at Moody all the time. And there are words, I do at least one a semester, and there are words that always trip me up because I've only ever heard them in English. Mm -hmm. And I've had to go back and go, what is that word in Spanish? Right. Uh, I know, so I'm cheating, so I'm giving the audience some insight here. I know that unlike many Puerto Ricans, you really know your generational history. And I know that it's uh, kind of interesting that it's not strictly Puerto Rican all the way up the chain. Uh, so maybe help us out, right? I know you got some, is it Jewish in you? Am I getting that right? <laughs> well, you know, if you go back, so so one of the things that, you know, we've always been interested in because my father was a, an orphan and my grandmother was an orphan. So it's really hard. You know, I'd have my friends talk about, you know, where they came from and all of this, you know, and their, their last names, right? Because you keep, you you know how it is with Puerto Ricans, you keep going back to your father's last name, your mother's, then your, you know, your, your grandfather's, you know, they do all this last name thing and I couldn't go far but four names and I was like oh man that's messed up so you're gonna go back four, four generations you're saying right, right. okay right. yeah so I was like that's messed up I can't I can't find so I started looking it up and I found out because we come from the Iberian right all of us come from southern Spain and in that area during the time that Fernando and Isabel were um, they had their rule part of what they wanted to do was to unite Spain. And to do that, they made people uh, have two things, language and religion. So if you were Jewish, you had to become a converso. And if you were um, Muslim, you, had to, you became a morisco. And uh, if you were Catholic, you were cool. So what people did was that they hid their real identities. And um, it's interesting because 
we were uh, we found out that we were Sephardic, right? So th- that there was that possibility, and I can't say for sure for sure yet, but it looks very um, probable that there was some Sephardic in there. All right, and so that's your background. You married an African American mm-hmm. so who is adds- also part of the Plamanki tribe. Oh, so he's mixed in and of himself too. Yes. So that adds another layer of mestizaje to your it does. family. It does. Let me put it to you this way. When my son was, um, he was he was young, he was like in kindergarten, a Japanese woman came to speak about her culture. My son came and, he, you know, he came home, he took off his shoes and he started teaching us what he had been taught. And that's kind of cute. That's fine. But he kept doing this like for months. And we're like, okay, so what's this about? He goes, no, mommy, I have to practice because look, you know, he'd done the, the, the family tree thing. He goes, look, we have African, we have Spaniard, right? Because we had that. We have Italian on my father's side. We have Taino, we have Plamanki. You know, he goes through the whole thing. He goes, but we have this one missing. We don't have any Japanese. So <laughs> his understanding was that he wanted to get married to someone who was Japanese so to that we could have, the rest to the have the inclusion. This young man How understood he? inclusion. He was five, man. He's in kindergarten. <laughs> but he understood inclusion because when we talked about who we were as a family, I didn't realize how much the message of inclusion was in how I explained this. So he wouldn't think that he was weird, right? So I, I really explained this and, and why this was beautiful. So to him, since it was so beautiful, he wanted to include whom he thought was missing. Interesting. That's amazing. That's Mestizai. That is amazing. Yeah, (laughs) Mestizai is amazing. That's right. Your five-year-old son just blew my mind. He's much older now, of course, but he just blew my mind. And your daughter is now married to a Mexican uh, man, right? And so, again, there are several layers of Mestizai in your your home background. Yes. What about church? I mean, some of the hard parts with this, right? You speak Spanish. Your husband's African-American. I imagine he doesn't speak much Spanish. Is that right? Or at least didn't A little bit here and there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So... What does that mean for your church experience? Did you go to a Spanish-speaking church? Do you, have you only gone to English churches? What does that look so like? So that's been, that's been very interesting because my husband and I are both ordained pastors, right? So, you know, you usually think of, you know, the pastor and the family, okay? But my husband was uh, pastoring in one church and I was pastoring in a different church. And this was when we, mo- when we first got married and we moved to Connecticut. So I was pastoring a Latinx church, right? It was a new church start. And, and and all of the mix of who we are in our Latinx church, right? And my husband was actually pastoring a white church that had never had an African-American man in their home. So if he went to do a, a house visit, they didn't know what to do with him. One man wanted to meet with him on the porch in January, and it's pretty cold in New England in January. You ain't lying. And the man had bronchitis. And my husband looks at me and goes, wait a minute, wait a minute, what's wrong with this? You got bronchitis. It's like 12 degrees out here. You want to talk to me on your porch? He goes, oh, I get it. You ain't never had a black man in your house before. He goes, well, uh, no, Reverend, I haven't. <laughs> At least he owned it. <laughs> yeah, he did. I mean, what else could he do? My husband goes, oh, that's not a problem. Let me show you what to do. You know, <laughs> And he kind of helped this gentleman to you know, uh, welcome oh him in his home and stuff like that. Oh he gosh. did it in a really funny way, right? But um, yeah, so that's kind of what was happening. But we were in a town where there were many um, native peoples. And so they started coming to the church because my husband does look a little native. And so they started coming to the church when they found out that he had the mix. So because of his personhood, right, the mix in him, the church started to be mixed. 
Wow. And then when people from my church, then, you know, we were from the same denomination, right? American Baptists and, you know, Baptists uh, freely associate, right? So we had activities together because we were close. The towns were close to each other. So we would go to his church, like, to see a movie, and you would see all these, you know, Latino kids and all the mix that we are coming into the church. And everybody was like, wow, you know, they're, they're, we're all looking at each other and seeing all these mixes of who we are. And that was like a, a really interesting thing, right? We're looking at each other's hairs and, you know, the kids are, are enjoying it. You know, the kids play. They, they love it, right? But the adults were like, oh, my God, you know, they had not experienced this. <laughs> and so it became a really interesting piece. If some of his people, you know, called the house, right, I would minister to them. And if, you know, the Latinx people called my husband with a little bit of Spanish that, that he knew and a little bit of English that my folk knew, they would, you know, they would minister. That's amazing. And so it was very interesting what took place there. But it has been an interesting thing for us as a family to find a church community that will uh, own fully who we are and what that mix really means. Right. And that's the hard part, right? That's why this it podcast is. we think is so important to help uh, those first generation immigrants or those that are trying to minister to minority communities help them make sense of what do we do about mestizaje? What do we do about this mixing that is happening? And how do we address the challenges that come from the older generation that didn't grow up in a world where uh, there was so much mixing happening, whereas the young people are now in an entirely mixed world. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, yeah. So it's about mo it. more than just language, right? It's certainly about more than just language. Yeah. You're, you're going to see that uh, our commitment here in this podcast is to address this in a, in a variety of ways. The next episode quick uh, advertisement. We're going to talk about language and we're going to decide what, what to do about that. But for now, just know that uh, as we're talking, as you hear in Elizabeth's story, uh, we're trying to address the issue as it relates to um, the integration of those pieces and, mm -hmm. and what it looks like to really tie uh, multi-ethnic, multi-generational, multilingual in a really in a really strong and tight way. And ecumenical. And ecumenical, yeah. Because, you know, my, my father's family was Catholic. My mother's family is Protestant. And that was really interesting. When my yeah. father married my mother, his family, his family didn't want to talk to him, right? I was yeah. 15 before I got to know his family. But that's another thing. But that is how we deal with that is also about how we're going to deal with this other mix. Mm -hmm. So looking into those resources for us, I think, will be important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that that's a, a major component of it. Absolutely. Now, how about you? You're sitting here milking me for my information. <laughs> I want to hear your story, too. Yeah. So I'll tell you a little bit about me. Uh, my uh, life is split into thirds. So I spent a third of my time in Detroit, Michigan, which was where I was born. Uh, I was, the earliest I can remember, I grew up in a neighborhood called Hamtramck. It's a, like a suburb that was absorbed by the growth of Detroit. Um, there were two major groups of people in that suburb in my early memories. Polish immigrants, mm -hmm. the big Polish community, and uh, immigrants from India, Bangladesh, kind of kind of that grouping of people, as best as I can understand it, right? I was I was a child then. Uh, so my experience of my Puerto Ricanness, I'm Puerto Rican. My experience of that was that if you were Puerto Rican, you were either related to me, or you went to my church, which was about 20 minutes away from my house. Right? <laughs> mm -hmm. that, that was the only Puerto Ricans I knew. I didn't have any connection so to So this is large... before you went to school. This is before I went to school, right? right my my right. earliest memories of, of, of being attached to Puerto Rican and what it means to be Puerto Rican, right? I, I didn't know very many other Puerto Ricans that weren't 
relatives. Right, because you hadn't been to the to the school, you hadn't been to any of the institutions you hadn't engaged in. I had engaged in. And then when I got to school, the only other Hispanics that I would meet were Mexican. I mean, mm-hmm. it was a massive Mexican community in the southwest mm-hmm. side of Detroit, which is where my family was really connected. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so... When I showed up to Orlando, which is the second part of the second third of the story, but when I showed up, my accent was funny speaking in Spanish. Mm-hmm. I, I used words that were Mexican slang, not Puerto Rican slang, right? Mm-hmm. I I, uh, I grew up in terms of my Spanish language acquisition. It grew up in a it grew in a Mexican context. So how how did you deal with that when you came over and you realized that you were different? Right? Oh yeah, well how there, there was a few things. One was a sigh of relief to think. Oh, I am not the only Puerto Rican. There's a whole group of young people that. And are how we Rican. look is different too. And how we look there's is more different. Black in us. How we look, what we eat. I mean, that's those are the big groups, right? Uh-huh. Mexican is that what the big uh, Hispanic community, the largest here in the U.S., but Puerto Rican is that close second, right? And so, so you weren't having chile with your food. I then. was not. No, I was. I never. I never acquired the spicy food taste. Oh. That's for sure. <laughs> Um, yeah, so grew up in Detroit, kind of wrestling with man, always having a, a sense of rivalry, right? Feeling somewhat the feeling like the smaller, the small minority group in a minority group, mm-hmm. if you will, right? Mm-hmm. Man, I'm Puerto Rican, I'm not Mexican, right? I played soccer, I, I did the whole whole thing. I show up to Orlando, Florida, for the second third of my life, right? And you played baseball, and I I didn't play baseball. <laughs> I did take on basketball though. Uh-huh. Um, I did play some baseball, I guess, but uh, only only a little bit. Um, but I did, what I did add was uh, rap y reggaeton. I did that mm-hmm. for a few years. I was a part of a ministry called One Spirit Ministries with a guy named Travi Joe, Rafto Mani Montes, Funky, the, the whole Spanish Christian hip hop world. I was a part of that for four or five years. Toured in Spain, East Coast, went up to New York, to Philly, Boston, got connected to Puerto Ricans out there. I went to Seattle and met Puerto Ricans there. So I went from... Somos como el arroz blanco. Oh, uh, we're everywhere. Somos como el arroz blanco. We're everywhere, right? Uh, but that was where I got kind of really rooted in my uh, Puerto Rican identity, in my sense of self as it relates to uh, my culture and ethnic background. And, and I uh, I leaned into it. I mean, like I said, I was rapping. I was doing reggaeton. My brother was making pistas. We were... So, so that's, that's what you lived. How about the history? Did you get any history of who you were? No. So I had to pick that up as an adult. Mm-hmm. So I, I got a sense of You had to go it. back. You had to be intentional about it. I had to be it. intentional. Yeah. Is so that the last third? That's the last okay, third. Okay. Let me not jump it. Yeah. Okay. No, you're good. I I, uh, I got connected sort of in real time to uh, Puerto Ricans and Dominicans. That was the primary base of mm-hmm. the community in- Caribbean. Yeah. Caribbean. Absolutely. In Orlando, Kissimmee area, which where, where's where I was, uh, to the point where some stores- People who live in Florida are going to know this. Uh, Publix is a big grocery store down there in Florida. The Publix nearest to, to where we lived closed for like three months. They remodeled, changed the name to Publix Sabor, and opened it up again. Everything <laughs> in Spanish. Because they really, it was dense. It was densely uh, Puerto Rican, Dominican, Cuban. It was densely Caribbean Latino. And they leaned into it too. Public so, sabor. Public oh, sabor. that's that's cool. I gotta remember that. Yeah, it was it was, it was a good and enriching experience. Where was this? In this Orlando? is all Kissimmee. Kissimmee. Oh, Kissimmee. Oh, it's an Orlando suburb. Public sabor. Wow. Public sabor. I want, I don't know if that's still. Did there. you have Puerto Rican bread? Pan sobao. Oh, pan sobao. Oh my god. Acá rato pan sobao, white rice and beans. I mean, it was it was an introduction. And the nice part was this early two thousands housing boom, right? And so 
we have uh, Puerto Ricans coming in from the island, and instead of moving to New York, which at the time, you know, New York and Chicago in early days, late 80s, early 90s, that, that would have been the where big they went. Yeah. Now they were moving to, to Kissimmee. Atlanta. And so I was getting connected, not just to other Puerto Ricans who were born in New York, Jersey. But to the Islanders. I was getting connected to Islanders. And so it, it really helped to say, no, 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 I'm connected to Puerto Rico. I went my first time during the second, third to Puerto Rico. That was a new experience. Went to Maunabo, where my mom is from. Went to Vega Baja, where my dad is from. And, and just got really introduced. Last third, I've spent here in Chicago. And so uh, I came here to study at the Moody Bible Institute got to know this place, fell in love with the city of Chicago, moved to Humble Park, which was a densely Puerto Rican community mm -hmm. uh, back in the day. Still kind of Hispanic, but not quite Puerto Rican in the same way. Uh, but did a lot of that. And this is where I've started to make connections to the history of my, of my people and origin. I found out that one of my grandfather's brothers was a part of the Puerto Rican kind of socialist movement and had an mm. activist streak. And so... Um, so that's I've only huge. started. That's oh, a huge history. Yeah, that's a whole. That's another podcast episode, yes, right? <laughs> yeah. But um, but yeah, I got to make sense of the activism part of my family, the the theological. My my grandfather was a church planter. I got to get connected to that and and make sense of uh, what it meant to be a part of the Padillas and and what that history was. And so, I only know as far back as my great grandfather because my family hasn't been really good about keeping that history. Mm -hmm. um, but, but those are the pieces that I As know. As immigrants, we lose so much. We lose so much indeed, yeah. And so, yeah, that's been the, the history for me. And that's why this has become so, so important for me. As one of those second generation Puerto Ricans who kind of had to work to gain his language, work to join his community and, and really be a part of it in a real way, I, I'm concerned by the young people who don't feel like they can be at home in the Puerto Rican church and certainly don't feel at home in the white church, right? Mm -hmm. They're they're kind of caught in this. And they can't define the nuances of why it is that they can't feel at home. Right, right. So they're not at home in either place, and they're caught in between. And that that's uh, alarming to me, and it, it became a point of commitment. I, I know that everyone's talking about churches being multicultural. Uh, my passion is making sure churches are multi-generational, right? <laughs> I, want, I want to see the young people tethered and connected to their families. And in case people who are listening to this don't really understand the depth of identity, um, I remember times in my life when not feeling like I was a part of one side or the other was a really agonic pain in my soul. It's a soul pain that you feel when you're not part of one side or the other. And it's like, well, who am I? You know, where do I belong? And and what am I about? And how do I move forward? And why is it that I do want to hold on to these things? And 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 how do I grab a hold of these other ones? And you know, it's a it's agonic. It's yeah. agonic, and you keep it for a lifetime unless you begin to really resolve these pieces and yeah. and reflect about them among people who are a part of this intersection. Mm -hmm. of different generations and That's cultures. Right. That's right. Yeah, for a while there, between my time in Orlando and my time here in Chicago, I left the Hispanic church and joined the white church because I wanted to get more biblical study. I wasn't getting a lot of biblical study. And I it was easier for me to study the Bible in English. I came here to Chicago and continued in that pattern in a mostly white church for uh, seven, eight years almost. And then I, I started going, well, hang on here. 
I can read in Spanish and I'm gonna trust and do the work to do this. And so I've been on that process now of transitioning back to being a part of the Hispanic church as a way of reflecting the very thing that I'm trying to say other young people should do. Um, because I think there's value there. There's something to be treasured there. Just very quickly, one of the things that really helped me to acquire my sense of um, identity, going back to my roots, was the Puerto Rican Studies Department uh, at Brooklyn College. So what I'm saying is that at some point we have to talk about how the intentional pieces, like, you know, for your last third, what they are. We have to name what those are and we have to name why history is important and what yeah. the sources are in our communities that provide those. Yeah. And, and I think that that speaks to what we want to address in this first episode. We really want to just introduce you to the problem. We want to make sure that we're all on the same page about what it is that minority churches are experiencing especially in the loss and the, the, the emptying out of the young pew. Uh, we want to identify how this problem came to be what it is. And then we want to show maybe how the majority culture church, the, the dominant, more white church, English dominant church, maybe how they might be contributing to that and how they also should be listening to this podcast and why they also should be connected to that. Uh, some background for you, this is history time with Yeah, Emmanuel contextualize Padilla. it, go ahead, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, history time with Emmanuel Padilla. This is a, a new segment to the Mestizo podcast. No, I'm kidding, it's the first episode. But um, in 1965, for those of you that don't know, uh, President Lyndon Johnson of the US, he signed a really important immigration law, the Immigration and Naturalization Act. He signed it into law. Here's what that did it changed the kind of immigrant that showed up to the U.S. So the, the kind of immigrant that showed up to U.S. prior to this uh, law uh, were of European descent. That was the, the, the largest group. But in mm -hmm. 1965, when this became law, that first five years, immigration pivoted to seeing immigrants from Asian countries and Latin America and Eastern European. So for uh, my Romanian brothers and sisters. This is where you start seeing them arriving to the U.S. So it's for first five years after this bill uh, passed, again, like I said, you had Asians, Latinos, Eastern Europeans became the big, uh, the largest group. There was a total of more than 18 million immigrants, legal immigrants that entered, entered the United States, which is more than three times the number admitted over the preceding 30 years prior to this bill. Big boom. Um, so a big boom of immigration uh, from parts of the world that uh, hadn't been a, a large part of the U.S. prior to that. Those individuals showed up to the U.S., and here's what they did. Uh, they planted churches. Now, that might come as a surprise to some of our uh, white listeners. Um, they showed up already Christian. Mm -hmm. They showed up with a Christian background. They had been a part of... Uh, some of the colonization of the Spaniards, for instance, for Latin America, and even the Philippines, right? They showed up here already having church backgrounds, and they planted churches. Those churches served two roles. They served the role of, of course, being a place of worship and spiritual pursuit and formation, but they also showed up, uh, they also served as places of cultural formation. And so it was a way of uh, building a network of support for the new immigrant who was arriving and keeping them tethered to a community like their own where they could speak the language. Uh, it also helped them with children, connected them to services that they might need as they immigrated to the country. It was an infrastructure. It was an infrastructure, absolutely. 
And, uh, and this became an important part of the cultural formation. Some churches were offering language classes, not English. They were offering, for instance, I know of a Korean church here in Chicago that still to this day offers Korean classes so that the church has taken on the responsibility of helping and supporting uh, the parents in enculturating the child mm -hmm. into the Korean background. And so uh, that's what these churches served at from 1965 till now. Now, where are we today is the question. And here's the reality. We're going to speak from our Hispanic uh, background, Elizabeth and I. And I believe, and I'm sure Elizabeth shares this, that in speaking from our background, you'll find that our situation is quite similar to that of other ethnic minorities. And I believe that this is going to resonate not just with the ethnic minority, but even with some white churches who are seeing their young people leave and are asking what might be go going on there. And so I'll tell you where things are today. First, uh, high schoolers today are already living in a world, in the U.S. at least, where there is no uh, majority group. For the Hispanics in the world, there's 60 million, there's roughly 60 million Hispanics here in the U.S., and 67% of that group are U.S. born. It means they didn't immigrate to the U.S. Very different than what Fox says. Very different than what Fox says, that's right. Uh, there's 67% of them are U.S. born, they're legal, they're here in the States. What does that mean? That means that this group experiences, a, experiences the U.S. and experiences America in a very different way. Uh, the median age for Latinos uh, is 29, which is significantly younger than the rest of the U.S. Uh, uh, the rest of the nationalities or the ethnic groups here in the U.S., the average age is 38, so it's almost 10 years younger. And there's some cities where it's even younger. It's even younger than that, right. And what's wild to me, the stat that blew my mind, is when you separate out U.S.-born Latinos versus foreign-born Latinos, the average age for the U.S.-born Latino is actually 20 years old. And so the largest group of the, the grouping of the U.S.-born Latinos is 20, 20 years old. That's so that tells you something about the future because you're 20, you're going to be coming into your childbearing years, you know, time mm -hmm. to make families, etc. Yep. And the greatest base of the Latino population is going to be children between the ages of zero and five. That's right, that's right. So this presents a new reality. Uh, these Latinos aren't just Latinos, they're Latin Americans. Um, some of them, uh, the grand majority of them are English dominant. Mm -hmm. and we're gonna talk about that. We'll show you the stats of that in the next episode here when we talk about language. Um, but th the point being here is that there's a growing tension between the foreign uh, the immigrant Latinos who came to this land from their home countries and those that were born here. The ones that are born here have a level of education. They have a different way of considering marital status. Uh, nearly half of the U.S. born Latinos are unmarried. Part of that's because they're young. Um, but uh, the point being here is that there's a whole different set of values on, in some occasions. Different lifestyles. Different lifestyles. And that's created a significant tension between the current state of the church um, and the future of the people that the church is trying to minister to. Uh, Daniel Rodriguez, uh, in his book, A Future for the Latino Church, he, he asks kind of a beautiful question. He says, the, the real question we need to ask is, what is the purpose and mission of the church? Is it to enculturate the young generation, or is it to preach the gospel in whatever means are necessary? And I think that that is the question that we need to ask ourselves as we start the Mestizo podcast. 
what is the purpose of the church as it relates to this tension between the first generation immigrants and the first generation minorities who started these churches and their children who are coming in as English dominant, partially American, to great degree American. Um, what is the, the purpose and mission of the church for this mestizo group of the two generations? I know, Elizabeth, you might have some initial insights to that. Well, I'm going to say that when we're talking about gospel pieces and we're talking about um, what it means to be a new generation, we have to ask about values, right? So it's going to be about values. Yeah. Um, and it is going to be about culture. We can't take the culture piece out because while we may identify with a lot of what is um, part of the U.S. culture, at the same time, uh, we're not fully there either. We're not fully there. Absolutely. So, this, there's still an outside there's the experience. mix, right? So the mix, we still have to talk about how that mix creates in itself a new culture and what are going to be our values. Yeah, that's absolutely right. How do we negotiate that? Because that, that's a part of how the first and second generation are going to be dealing with each other is around issues of values. Yeah. We're going to be bringing in some guests. So you'll be hearing not just from us, but other people who are experts in certain key areas related to mestizaje, key areas related to this mixing, related to youth ministry, the transition of power, all those things. And so I hope that you're as excited as we are to address these realities. The point is, uh, today we wanted to introduce you to ourselves. We wanted to introduce you to the problem, uh, the reality that uh, in 1965, these churches were immigrant-based and all of them were immigrants. Today, that's not the case. Uh, today, in fact, the majority of these churches are, are facing the reality that young people want to step into leadership, uh, but are having struggles with how those churches are uh, kind their of exercising vision. their mission and vision. Mm -hmm. That's right. And so we want to address that. Uh, so welcome to the Mestizo Podcast. Hey, if you're a listener who wants to engage these topics over the next few episodes, in episode two, we're going to be talking about language. So be on the lookout for that and how, uh, what language we should be speaking, what's the lingua franca of the church. Uh, if you have questions, doubts, concerns, the great part of the Mestizo Podcast is at the very end, the last episode of this season, we're going to do an all questions from the listeners. If you have a question for us, you can either send it to us via email on the uh, show notes page for World Outspoken. You'll see that on the website where this podcast is hosted. Or you can call us. You can call 312-329-8916. That's 312-329-8916. You can call in, leave us a voicemail, let us know your questions. And we look forward to on the last episode, uh, keep those questions short, 30, 30 seconds, tell us who you are, where you're from, ask us the question, and we'll have that. We'll pull it up on the, on the episode. We'll be answering questions there as well. Blessings to you from me, Emmanuel Padilla, and from Elizabeth Conde Frazier. Blessings. Looking forward to a very rich dialogue. Bendiciones. Bye bye.